0: As we study the book of Colossians and we finish it up next week, we're talking about the importance of teammates, teammates, and how the Apostle Paul is able to survive and thrive even in a prison as he potentially awaits his death. And he writes this church that he's never seen before, the church of Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, and he gives out this incredible letter called the book of Colossians, And he rehearses faithful teammates who have walked with him. And last week we met a guy named Tychicus, who's referred to as a beloved brother in the Lord, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. All pointing to the centrality of Christ, brother, minister, servant, and Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Again, pointing to the centrality of of Christ. And the thesis, as we read the scripture, is is that men and women are called into fellowship with one another under the banner of Christ. And when we walk with each other in fellowship and in friendship and in uh, honesty, that our souls can prosper. But if we separate ourselves, then we're wide open to the devil's ploys. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, verse 20, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. I reread a book this week. It's a book called Comrades by a man named Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose is a World War II historian, but also wrote an incredible book on Lewis and Clark entitled Undaunted Courage. Uh, I enjoy reading Stephen Ambrose. He taught at the University of New Orleans for decades, from Wisconsin, played football for the Badgers, by the way, um, died a couple of years ago. But this is just a real thin book. It's an easy book to read. And the thesis of the book is that historically, as he's walked through being a professor of history for year after year after year, he's noticed a pattern. And the pattern is that men, and it's really written to men, men who have strong friendships and who are walking in step with other people do well, especially if they have good friends. But men who are isolated do not do well. So it goes throughout history, talks about sitting bull and crazy horse, for example. But he, he highlights uh, Dwight Eisenhower president eisenhower uh, supreme commander of the allied forces dwight david eisenhower Um, eisenhower was born in abilene excuse me grew up in abilene kansas he was born in texas and he moved out of texas when he was just a few months old and texas has always claimed him as their own which is not really fair but texas does that they do that they just kind of take credit at times when they should not but anyway he grew up in abilene kansas he was one of six brothers all boys no sisters and in one of the, the biographies that Ambrose writes about Eisenhower says that sometimes the Eisenhower boys just fought because it was fun. <laughs> and they were just, they, they lived in a very poor, poor existence, uh, barely eking by, and, but all the boys grew up to be really outstanding men. One of, the, one of the older brothers, Eisenhower was number three, uh, left after high school and went to Kansas City to pursue a banking career, and he roomed in Kansas City with another young man who had no money, and his name was Harry S. Truman. And they became great friends. But Eisenhower developed a, a deep kinship with his youngest brother, who was nine years younger than him, and who resembled Eisenhower, and who sounded just like him on the telephone, and he would often fool Eisenhower's wife and vice versa, and his name was Milton. But Milton became the assistant secretary of agriculture, eventually the president of Kansas State University, his alma mater, Penn State, and Johns Hopkins, um, a, a very gifted man. And he was the unofficial, uh, really, counselor for, of Dwight Eisenhower for year after year after year as president. He, he was behind closed doors. That the brothers would let each other have it. And Eisenhower, on his deathbed, told his brother, "Uh, you you have no idea how much your friendship has meant to me through the decades. But we talked about how Eisenhower just had friends, but he he contrasts that with a man named Richard Nixon, who is Eisenhower's vice president. And he writes a chapter on Richard Nixon that is entitled, Nary, N-A-R-Y, Nary a Friend. And he said that Richard Nixon, and he did the biography of Richard Nixon, never had friends. A lot of people knew him, but he never had friends. In fact, he writes this. He says, when Nixon, with Nixon, the anger ran so deep it never left him. He was the angriest American president I have ever studied. And This comes from a historian. He was a man who could never trust others and had no real friends. Nearly everyone who worked closely with President Nixon commented on this, and Eisenhower when he was president and Nixon was vice president, once told his secretary after a meeting with Nixon that he couldn't understand how a man could go through life without friends, close quote. And so he writes that in the dark hours that preceded Watergate and came after the Watergate crisis that, that Nixon just had no friends. And in fact, Senator Barry Goldwater from Arizona came to him and said, Mr. President, you need to resign and it's sad, sad to say, but no one has ever really known you, Mr. President. So he compares and contrast. And even though Stephen Ambrose, I've read all of his books, I think I never get the sense that he had a faith orientation at all. In fact, one of his best friends was a man named Richard Lamb, who's a three-term Colorado governor and who was proclaimed the secular humanist of the year a few years ago, and a wonderful man, but he had no faith orientation. But, but even with that, as he traces history, uh, Stephen Ambrose says that it's vitally important for people to have friendships with people who encourage them and build them up and can challenge them. He just That's just a pragmatic observation. But the Scripture time after time after time reinforces that. And so I asked you last week, I said, who are your 2 o'clock in the morning Waffle House friends? Who who do you call when life just isn't going well? Who do you reach out to when you say, I, I just need someone to to talk to. There's a verse in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, that says this, See to it, brothers, see to it, lest there be any of you that has an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that you will not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And the writer of Hebrews says, you see to it, see to it, and exhort each other. And so the age-old question from Genesis, when Cain says to the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? And the Bible says the answer is yes, that we are responsible to walk with each other. We're responsible to be in fellowship with each other. We are to see to it. And so this morning, I'm going to introduce you to another of Paul's teammates. He's the pastor of the church at Colossae, and his name is Epaphras. And the passage is Colossians 4, verses 12 to 13. A key teammate with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's in prison. He's awaiting his execution, and yet he's thriving and surviving at times, but thriving because he's surrounded by men who are praying for him and loving him and caring for him, who are gospel-centered, Jesus-saturated, great commission-looking men. And Epaphras was one of them. Listen to what the Bible says. Ephesians, excuse me, Colossians chapter four, verse 12 and 13. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. Just stop. So his designation is not my buddy, my pal, my running mate, my cohort, he's a servant of Jesus. The the, the centrality of what we're about as followers of Christ is who Jesus is in our lives. A servant of Christ Jesus greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras. So just one thing about Epaphras— And then the content of that one thing about about Epaphras. Very simple sermon outlined this morning. The thing that Paul highlights about Epaphras is that he is struggling for you in prayer. And we get our word agony from this Greek word. So he, he is in agony for you in his prayers. He is struggling for you in his prayers. He has laid himself out for in his prayer, and here is his prayer: that you stand mature in the Lord, fully assured in all of the will of God for you. You stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. He's, he's laboring, he's he's struggling. Paul uses the same word, agonizing or struggling, in chapter one, verse twenty-nine. I says this, for for, for this I toil struggling or agonizing with all his energy that powerfully works within me. Paul says, I'm agonizing for you guys. Verse 1 to chapter 2, for I want you to know how great a struggle or agony I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all that have not seen me face to face. It's an agony. See, the, the agony, listen, Parents, grandparents, spouses, children praying for parents, children praying for siblings, whatever, people in your community, they're they're agonizing. Listen, don't miss this. They're not agonizing that they'll get in the right graduate school. That's not a bad prayer request. They're not agonizing that they find the right spouse. That's a good prayer request. They're not agonizing that they find a viable occupation that will give them economic prosperity. It's a wonderful prayer request. But the primary prayer request is this: that they stand mature, fully convinced of all the will of God. The greatest prayer I can pray for, for my friends, for my kids, for my grandkids, for my is this, that they stand mature in Christ, fully convinced of the will of God for them, found in the Bible. Because if that happens, there's a little statement in Colossians 1 that it just excites me it says in Christ all things hold together if if you're newly married getting married if you're newly parents going to be parents if you're going to a transition right now and you're this is kind of a transition time new school year new graduate school whatever the most important thing I can grapple with and understand is that in Christ all things hold together so everything flows from the reality and the glory and strength of Christ you got to see that If you don't get that, you won't get this passage. He's not agonizing over these things, good things. He's agonizing that they stand mature, fully assured of all the will of God. He's agonizing. Listen, to know people is to agonize, to struggle. This is a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Four Loves. And part of the quote is in your worship guide. I'm I'm gonna read two paragraphs. Just let me read this. Two and a half paragraphs. This Lewis says this about agonizing, struggling. To know people is to struggle. I'll just say. So so if you know how really selfish you are, get married. If you want to find out how utterly selfish you are, have a baby. They cry at 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. They're demanding. You know, babies, they they, they cry if they're hungry or they have a soiled diaper. I don't blame them, quite honestly. I would too. But they demand immediate attention. I mean, people that don't believe in original sin just need to have a baby. No. This is what Lewis says. Some people say don't put your goods in a leaky ba- vessel. Don't spend too much time on a house you may be turned out of. And there is no man alive who responds more naturally than I to such canny maxims. I am a safety first creature. Of all arguments against love, none makes so strong an appeal to my nature. As careful this might lead to suffering, Close quote. Lewis says, if I'm sure of anything, I'm sure that the teaching of Christ was never meant to confirm my congenital preference for safe investments and limited liabilities. I doubt whether there is anything in me that pleases him less. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. You wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and avoid all entanglements. You lock it safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. Then he says this. It's a great way to close this. The only safe place outside of heaven where... You can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations or anguish of love is hell. I think he's right. To, to, to love is to have your heart broken. It's to live with an anguishing spirit. It's to struggle. So I ask you, who, who are your teammates? Who are the people that walk with you? Who are the people that anguish with you. There's a man named Paul David Tripp and he's got a little devotional called New Morning Mercies and it's just really good stuff. Let me read a a paragraph and a half. He says this my heart just, yeah he says, I understand why people after experiencing the hurt and disappointment that so often mars our relationships decide to live in isolation or in a comfortable collection of terminally casual relationships you know, isn't that true? You get hurt, you pull back I understand why people say to themselves, I've been taken once, I won't be taken again. I understand why married couples choose to live in long-term Cold War relationships that lack intimate friendship and unity. I understand why ministry people often choose to live in functional isolation from the body of Christ. I understand why many people dread the extended family gatherings that accompany the holidays. I understand why people hide their hurt and refuse to talk about painful topics with one another. I understand. And this is this new paragraph. But here is one thing that I understand. It is that for the believer, relationships are not a lifestyle option. No, they are an essential part of God's calling between you, your, your salvation, and your final resurrection. Biblical faith is fundamentally relational, and he's right. Who, who are you agonizing two o'clock in the morning, friends? Uh, are you in a small group? Are you in a men's group, a women's group? Are you in the community group? Are you, are you getting together with people who have the freedom to speak to you and pray for you and laugh with you and even weep with you? We desperately need that. It's not, it's not an option. So, so my, my question is, I look at this is just, for whom am I anguishing? I mean, struggling? God, please work in their heart. Please, God. And who's struggling for me? Who am I agonizing over? We need people that we are agonizing over. Oh God, open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Oh, God, keep them safe and strong. Oh, God. I told you this before. I have a, a two one-year-old ch- grandchildren and a grandchild's going to be, he's going to be three next month. We pray every day for their spouse if God would have them be married right now. In fact, I was a friend this morning with my wife. I said, if they're born yet, <laughs> I'll pray for their spouses every day. Because, listen, the most important decision you will ever make, apart from the decision to follow Christ, which God, anyway, anyway, is who you marry. Write that in your Bible, young people. Man, and thank God for praying to parents and grandparents. So who's agonizing for you? So 20, 25 years ago, I'm sitting in the church and they deliver the mail and there's a little packet and inside, I think I've told you this before, but inside the packet is, is, is a little book. It was really kind of cheesy. It said, uh, how to pray for your pastor. And it was just 30 days of devotions with a way to pray for your pastor. And and um, so I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm saying, well, there are one of two women I can give this to, Beth Bulchus or Eleanor Johnson, because I know they pray for sure. And so it just so happened that afternoon that Beth came walking in. I said, Beth, I've got a gift for you. I thought it was kind of cheesy. It's kind of embarrassing. You know, a lot of stuff we put together as Christians really needs a lot of work. This is one of them, you know. Our movies are getting better. Okay, but anyway. Anyway, so I give it to her, and she says, oh, thank you, and I thought, yeah. Okay. Then give it another thought. So she dies 15 years later, 12 years later. And at the funeral at her house, her daughter who lives in Ohio said, I want, I want to give you this book. And it was that book. And it had words circled and the pages were worn and things were underlined. There were stars here. And I thought, wow. I gave, it, I gave it to my wife. And I, church, I don't understand prayer I fully believe that God has kept me from being more stupid than I am because that dear woman prayed for me. She agonized for me. And I ask you, who's agonizing for you? For whom are you agonizing? Paul had a teammate named Epaphras who agonized for the church at Colossae and Laodicea. But here, don't miss this. The content of his prayer. Stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Stand mature. Be strong. And fully assured in all the will of God. Ephesians 6 uses the word stand three times. Stand. 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 Stay mature and fully assured. Now, in Colossae, we've talked about this. Colossae had something called the Colossian heresy, and it's like a lake, and they had all these tributaries run into the lake. One tributary that ran into the lake was, 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 was Jewish law-keeping, and they said, you know, it's great to believe in Christ, but if you don't observe feast days and fast days and get circumcised, you can't be in the club. And Paul said, a pox on that. And then there was another stream that flew into the Colossian heresy, you know, whirlpool. And and it said, you know, basically that you've got to have visions and have angelic messengers and have these esoteric experiences to really be part of God's team. And Paul says, a pox on that house. And there's another group that said, no, there are magic words. And you have to say these magic words. And you've got to say these words. And somehow it'll open up the mystery of the God who cannot be defined. And Paul said, I'll tell you the key word about who the mystery of God is. His name is Jesus Christ. And, and, and so, it was, it's, this is a prayer that says, "I want you to stand firm and fully assured in all the will of God." And there's a little commentary, a linguistic commentary, that says this phrase means to stand firm, fully convinced, assured through rich, gratifying insight into all spiritual matters, understanding which penetrates the mind and fills the heart. I'll say it again. You, you stand firm, fully convinced and assured through rich, gratifying insight into all spiritual matters, which penetrates the mind and it fills the heart. So, so really, to combat heresy, to combat silliness, Paul just rehearses the gospel. He, in chapter one, he just rehearses the gospel. He says in chapter one, verse two, he says... To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossae. If you're a believer, you are hidden in Christ. You're baptized into Christ. Your position is you are in Christ. And Paul says, behold who you are in Christ. And then he talks about the hope of heaven. Verse 5, he says, says, you love the brothers and you have faith in Christ. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He says, Behold the hope of heaven. And then he talks about the greatness of the gospel. Verse 12, he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. He's qualified you. He's qualified you. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So not only has he qualified you as a believer he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and he's transferred you into his kingdom i think that's speaking of his adoption of you behold the greatness of your salvation and then verse 21 he says And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Listen, if you're in Christ, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach. And Paul says, Behold the greatness of your salvation. And so, so I, I need to be a man who, who, who daily rejoices in the greatness of my salvation. I was reading this week, a cover story in the newspaper, about the Yazidi people. The Yazidi people are, there there's 700,000 to 1 million Yazidis in the world. And the vast majority of them live in northern Iraq. And they are a, 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 com, a syncretistic combination of... Um, Zoroastrianism, Islam, folk, beliefs, it's just a very different belief system. And the Islamic people consider them to be high-level apostate renegades. So if Sharia law ever comes in, which it did in northern Iraq, they are heavily persecuted. So, so the caliphate was established in northern Iraq, and, and thanks be the Lord, the caliphate has, has collapsed. And... And, and so they had to flee, but, but they left behind a number of Yazidi women. What they would do is they would go into these Yazidi areas and they would kidnap the women. And uh, uh, guys, ISIS is bad stuff. You just need to bad, bad stuff. And they would take these women and they would give them to warriors as the spoils of war, and they would be repeatedly raped and chained at home and beaten happened all the time, to scores of Yazidi women. And so when the caliphate collapsed, these men had to run for their lives and left behind these women, and many of them had had children, so, a lot of children. But here, here's, here's what happens. So the Yazidi clan or religion says, we, we will welcome you back among us, even though you're severely tainted because of your living with somebody that's not... A, you can only marry a Yazidi. But to come back, you cannot bring your child with you because your child is not pure Yazidi. It's Sunni Muslim and Yazidi. And so these women, many of them left their children and people picked them up and took them to orphanages. It's a horrible thing. And it, the, the, the profile as a woman who, who's never known anything but the Yazidi faith and the Yazidi people, the Yazidi clan, and she made the um, incredible decision to not go back to her home or her family or her siblings. And she's living in a safe house in northern Iraq run by some Christians, and she's going to be given citizenship at another place. She will never see her family again. She says this, I can't abandon the child that's nursing at my breast. And as I read that, I thought, what kind of cruel worldview says to people you can come back but this child that is the result of horrendous forced sexual conquest through no fault of its own is impure and can't come back and and here's my answer every world religion in, in this regard every world religion says I work I work I work I work I do Yazidis I work I work I work I work I do and maybe I'll be accepted by the God who they don't even know how to define. But the Christian faith says, you are holy, blameless, and above reproach because you are in Christ. Don't don't ever get over that if you're a believer. We are in Christ. I'm in him because he's done it. Now, I'm gonna give you an illustration. It's kind of pedantic and silly, but I, I think it works. A few weeks ago, My, uh, we went to visit my son in uh, Wenatchee, Washington. He has two children, and he and his wife do, and they're delightful people, and so they shop at Costco in Wenatchee most of the time. And so we were downtown, we were going to meet him to go shop at Costco, the kids were with their mom, and so he texts us and he says, you know, there's no cell phone in in Costco, you know, the, the, the cone of silence. So you can't do the thing. So I'll be there. Just come in the back and we'll shop together. Which means I want you to buy the groceries. Okay. And and so we, and so we, we, we park and uh, Costco and uh, didn't have a Costco card. Because, so, so I'm locking the car up. My wife's in front of me five steps, which is not unusual. And so we go into Costco and there's a greeter there an older woman and she says welcome, come I see your card? My wife goes, my son's in the back and she just she just, walks, she just blows by her. So I'm, I walk up and I wait, she says, sir, do you have a card? And I said, she gives me eye contact. I said, no. She said, stand over there, please. I went, "Are you really? stand right there, sir, until somebody comes and gets you. I'm going. So I, I did. I, I, stood, and I couldn't communicate with him so said, I'm up here being apprehended by the Costco greeter woman. And so about four minutes later, my son comes up there, and he's laughing. He says, Dad, why didn't you—people I mean, come. He says, welcome, welcome, welcome. She looked look at me. Don't you move. I've got my eye on you, sir. And he said, Dad, you let an 80-year-old woman who weighs 85 pounds keep you from coming to the back of Costco? And I said, son, first of all, she weighed at least 90 pounds. Let's get this right. I said, I— I was raised by mom and dad respect authority and I went to the Citadel and she is the woman in charge in this fear of God's sovereignty and she told me to stand here and I stood there. So I did. Fast forward four weeks. I'm in the conference coming into town. My daughter calls us. She says, dad, mom, Costco, North Mount Pleasant has opened. I said, oh yeah. I said, you know, I knew that was something happening because my neighbors had a Costco countdown calendar on their refrigerator. You know, 20 days, 15 days, eight days, and a sad existence, sad existence. So I said, I'm not sure that we're going to... She says, Dad, you need to join. You need to join. I said, okay, I'll join. My daughter can talk me into anything. So coming in town, we stopped, and uh, we joined. So, So now... Now, you know what? I go to Costco, I've got the card. And so I go in Costco. And she says, welcome to Costco, sir. And I said, you and me. Now, it's a silly illustration. If I'd stood outside the Costco in you and given out food to hungry people, they wouldn't let me in. If I stood outside and given clothes to people that needed clothing, they wouldn't let me in. I could have said to them, you know, my son and his wife are members here, and my daughter is going to be a member, and uh, Family Heritage doesn't do it. They, uh, hear me. There's only one way to get into the eternal kingdom of the triune God, and that's through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Giving out clothes, as commendable as that may be. Feeding the hungry, commendable. Having relatives that trust Christ, wonderful. But the issue is, I need to glory in the greatness and the gospel of Jesus Christ. I need to be a man who rejoices in the gospel of grace. Do you know that hope? Do you know that hope? So as, as Paul says, I'm struggling in prayer. Then he says, the content of the prayers is stand firm, fully assured in all the will of God, which is a truth that penetrates the mind and it fills the heart. Now, bear with me here. I'm going to take down a, a theological historical trail. My favorite preacher of the last century was a man named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was a, a Welch physician who became a pastor. And he preached for 30-some years at Westminster Chapel in London. And, and every year they had a conference on the Puritans. And so he would preach. And so over a series of about 27 years, they would take his sermon and type it. And they put it into a book called Puritanism. Now, the Puritans, 1560 to 1660 was their heyday. A godly, godly, godly group of people who loved the gospel and loved to live as under the Lord. I love the Puritans. Okay. So that's Lloyd-Jones. So he wrote a, he had a sermon about, about some Welch Puritans yeah, that he preached years ago. And I read it this weekend. It's part of the book. It's a great little book. And then he, he talks about uh, a man named William Williams and Daniel Rowland and Hal Harris, all from Wales. And Lloyd-Jones loved that because he was from Wales. And then he says this. He says, they were Calvinistic Methodists, Calvinistic Methodist And he said this: Calvinistic Methodism is the true biblical Calvinism, in Lloyd Jones' opinion. Now, as, if you know church history, Methodism today is not associated with Calvinism. No, don't get taught, caught up in the categories, but, but, so, so Calvinism Calvinists are people who basically love doctrine. I, I love I'm a Calvinist. they love doctrine that they love scripture they love confessional statements they love to bore down into the word and live there the problem sometimes is that we can become overly uh, focused on doctrine and and just that's the end all be all conversely methodist love the experience uh, th- this is kind of during the time, 1738, John Wesley had his heart strangely warmed in London. And, and th- they loved the experience. And they would say to one another, have you felt the presence of Jesus in your life? These are Hal Harris, William Williams. Have you tasted the sweetness of Christ? And, and so Lloyd-Jones kind of sort of says this, this um, distillation. Calvinism saved the Methodist from their self. In that, if you, and we know this, if you are an experienced primarily your only person, you eventually, and you do not stay tethered to the word, you eventually can spin out of control and become like the Quakers or the Shakers that don't read the Bible. They just wait for the Holy Spirit to speak and somebody starts speaking. I mean, that's, and that always, 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 always leads to error. Conversely, The Methodists that save the Calvinists from themselves. Because the Methodists would talk about experiencing the greatness of Christ. And tasting the sweetness of Christ. In the context of understanding and applying biblical truth. And I love that study. And I see it in this passage. Truth that, that, that penetrates the mind and fills the heart. For example, in in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this. He he says, I'm struggling for you. Verse 1, that you would see the supremacy of Christ. And then he says this, therefore, verse 6, therefore points to the previous argument. Therefore, as you have received, past tense, you've received a body of truth. You've received it, it's yours. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, which means live in him. Walk is a present tense that calls for continuous and habitual action. It's present tense. Walk in him, rooted, past tense. A passive, I mean, it's it's a past tense relationship that calls for present tense action. You're rooted in Jesus. You're not going anywhere. You've received him, rooted and built up in him, present tense. You're being built up, present is today, this August 26, 2018. You're being built up. Built up in Him and established in the faith, established as present is. Keep on being established. Established in the faith as you were taught abounding with thanksgiving. Now, There's, there's the emotive word. So, so you, you have received him, you're walking in him, you're rooted in him, you're built up in him, you're established in the faith that you were taught and you're abounding with thanksgiving. So, so, so my question to you and me is as you believe and hold to the truth as I hope you do, Are you experiencing the sweetness and the glory and the goodness of knowing Jesus Christ? Do you have a felt experience with Jesus? I remember I was at seminary, and a guy came in, and he said the same thing day after day after day. There's a series series, of preaching week, and he said this day after day after day. So it got beaten in my brain. He said this. He says, when it comes to the power of the Holy Spirit, it is not the Holy Spirit. Don't say amen. Okay? So. It is not the Holy Spirit, um, uh, excuse me, it's not you getting more of the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And after um, thinking about it for a long time, I, 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 I don't agree with that. I agree with some of them. It's not about you getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. Absolutely. Every day we need to lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, you're you're the potter. I'm the clay. Absolutely. But church, I believe there are deeper experiences of empowerings and grace and upbuilding that come from the hand of the living God by the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to taste the goodness of Jesus. I want to There's a man of Bernard of Clairvaux who lived in the 1200s. John Calvin quotes him all the time. And he's got a a hymn. I love this hymn. Jesus, the very thought of thee. It goes like this. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. But greater still thy face to see and in thy bosom rest. O joy of every contrite heart, O hope of all the, 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 the meek. To those who fall, how kind thou art. How good to those who seek. Now now let's unpack that just real quickly. Clairvaux, Bernard of Clairvaux says this, Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast. Absolutely, yes, yes, yes. But greater still, thy face to see, and in thy bosom rest. Lord, I'm in Christ, but oh, I want to taste and experience the deep, empowering that comes from knowing Jesus do you see the difference how kind you are to those who fall. amen he's so kind how good to those who seek so I just say church taste there's another guy that talked about walking with the Lord and he said that walking with the Lord is a Puritan He said, uh, it's like walking down the street with your dad, holding his hand, and he's smiling at you, and you're glad, and you're happy, but just occasionally, your dad will reach up and, and wrap you in his arms and kiss your neck, he says, that's what I want. Thanks be to God for the greatness of the gospel of Christ. Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but greater still thy face to see and in thy bosom rest. Wow. Anyway, okay. Then the last thing he says is this. Abounding in thanksgivings. That's the emotive term. You know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm rooted, established, built up in the faith. I'm walking in. and, And I abound in thanksgiving. I abound. It's a strong word. And I'm just, just, are you abounding in thanksgiving? Martin Luther said this. He said, If I understand that my sins are forgiven, smite me all you want, Almighty God, smite me. In other words, Luther said, If I can really get hold of the forgiveness of sin, bring it on. Bring it on. So this week I picked up a book entitled uh, Six Years in the Hanoi Hilton about a Vietnam. Air Force pilot who went to the Air Force Academy named James Shively from Washington State, written by his stepdaughter. The foreword was written by Senator John McCain. Read last night where Senator McCain uh, passed away. And Senator McCain, whether you voted for him or not, was a real American hero. So he wrote the foreword, the stories about a man who was shot down and for six years. He was in the Hanoi Hilton, and he was beaten, and he was, the, the, the things they went through are, unbelievable. And he got out and he went back to his home and his high school sweetheart had been married and had two little girls and her husband had left her, abandoned her and he started dating her and they got married and he became the real dad to these girls who'd been abandoned and they had two girls of their own so he was surrounded by four women and his wife all of his life. And he died in 2000 and uh, six at the age of 64 years. But she talked about her dad and how he was a hard worker and how he was very kind. But she said this about her dad. She said, my dad told me repeatedly this statement. He said, said, uh, any day you can turn the handle on the door and walk out of the room into fresh air is a very good day. <laughs> any day. Speaking of, as a, being a prisoner who could never leave his room, who was tied, often had chains around his neck and his arms. He said, I came to the understanding that any day you can stand up and walk across the room and turn the handle on a door and walk out into fresh air is a good day. And I read this book, and there's no hint of a faith orientation. I don't know. But I thought about, about me. Yeah. My sins are forgiven. If I die, I go to heaven. I have the Holy Spirit, I have the Word of God, place to stand. I have the Living God as my Abba, Father, and Shepherd. Am I abounding in thanksgiving? Do I understand that today is a very good day? Today is a very good day. A Statement from a guy named Charles Spurgeon regarding abounding in thanksgiving. It's in the sermon guide, gracious souls are never perfectly at ease except when they are in a state of nearness to Christ. For when they are away from him, they lose their peace. The nearer to Christ, the nearer to the perfect calm of heaven. The nearer to Christ, the fuller the heart is. Not only of peace, but of life and vigor and joy. For these all depend on constant fellowship with Jesus. What the sun is to the day and what the moon is to the night. What the dew is to the flower. Such is Jesus Christ to us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for today. Thank you for the simple, beautiful teaching of the Bible. Thank you for a man named Epaphras who struggled in prayer for other people. And the point of his struggling primarily was they may be fully mature and stand mature as they taste the sweetness and the goodness of the gospel. May that be the prayer for those of us who are believers for our contemporaries and our loved ones and our neighbors. And may we put feet to that prayer. So we thank you for this day. Thank you for your tender mercies to us. Thank you that today is a very good day because you're a God who gives blessings and empowerment to your people and you're a God whose arms are open to those who would run to you in faith today. In Jesus' name, amen.